0: We have just released issue four of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the Leading Edge of Knowledge and Discovery, with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be looking at critical theory and the paranormal. If you're wondering what critical theory is, well, stay tuned. You'll find out. My guest is Jacob W. Glazer, who is assistant professor of psychology at the University of West Georgia. He is also an online adjunct professor in the Department of Applied Psychology at New York University Steinhardt. He is author of Arts of Subjectivity, A New Animism for the Post-Media Era. He is editor of the new anthology, Paranormal Ruptures, Critical Approaches to Exceptional Experiences. Jacob is based on the East Coast of the U.S., and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome Jake, it's a pleasure to be with you again.
1: Hi, Jeff, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: It's been, I believe, a couple of years, and uh, since we spoke last, you are now an assistant professor at the University of West Georgia. So I assume you're living in Georgia.
1: I am. I am. I'm. I'm in Atlanta, uh, and so you know, I, I teach out in Carrollton, Georgia, which is about a little bit over an hour outside of Atlanta, uh, the w- Western Georgia area. But yeah it just feels so great to be a part of a psychology program that allows space to explore these exceptional experiences and to be able to have the freedom to to teach about it to incorporate students into research and it's just so nice because it's such a rare
0: occurrence and west georgia is one of the uh, rare university locations where somebody can do postgraduate work, uh, looking at various aspects of the paranormal. Exactly.
1: Yeah. We uh, So, we're, we currently have, you know, uh, several PhD students that in various ways, while not explicitly focused on parapsychology or the paranormal, you know, they're sort of interested in looking at um, different aspects of, of parapsychology. And of course, we have uh uh you know faculty full-time faculty myself and others Dr. Dr. Christine Simmons Moore who are sort of actively engaged in parapsychological research
0: mm-hmm. and I want to uh let our viewers know that I have uh that we've done some previous interviews that's why I'm raising my hand here because I'm going to link to some of our earlier interviews so uh, it'll help viewers who may not have heard them get up to speed I know when we start talking about critical theory lots of times uh, it has a particular jargon and I'll make a, an effort to make sure we define terms as as we go along but it'll help people to get familiar with your point of view, which I think is a very unique point of view if they check out some of those earlier videos. So, we're only talking about critical theory today and how it pertains to the paranormal. And It's such a vague term, critical theory. I think it it deserves a definition to begin with
1: it is it it can be vague uh jeff but i think you know critical theory i think generally the way that i like to define it is that it is the analysis of how power functions uh in various levels and systems so we could take institutional power uh, how that sort of molds and shapes subjectivity or we could take, you know, more discursive kinds of power and effects. Power effects, like, for example, the power effects of legendary science and how that has tended to, I would say, ostracize or sideline parapsychology. And so, you know, to make it really succinct, I think critical theory is, um, the again, the analysis, the examination of these kinds of power effects.
0: I gather, though, it's not just... Purely descriptive that that critical theory aims to uh, liberate people who have been on the margins.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I there's a, there is a social justice component uh, to critical theory, and what I mean by that is that oftentimes we. Uh, sort of pointing out the holes and gaps in uh, discourses and narratives and institutions that uh, sort of remain implicit. And to be even more explicit about that, you know, how has it gotten to be the case that certain groups of people are sort of stigmatized, ostracized, and marginalized, whereas others are privileged? And so, yes, I think there's absolutely this sort of uh interventive uh aspect to critical theory is that it's not it's not just descriptive, Jeff, like you say, it's not just an analysis, but but we want to create an effect, right? We're making an intervention in these kinds of discourses.
0: To me, that puts parapsychology, in a way, right at the heart of critical theory or what critical theory could be because, at least from my perspective, I'm sure not every parapsychologist thinks about it the way I do, but I suspect you do. and, and That is to say that parapsychology itself serves as a, a, a vehicle for liberation of, of the psyche. I
1: would agree with that assessment. I think that, you know, we have to sort of uh, take what Rhea White said about exceptional human experiences and take them at face value in terms of, given my clinical training as a therapist, I know this, validating people's experiences that they're having, not trying to sort of apply these... uh macro lenses these meta narratives onto these sort of participants we can do that maybe later on but i think it's so important uh clinically and uh even at the discursive level in terms of critical theory to sort of take these at face value understand in what sense are they performative this is another aspect of critical theory that we can talk about but these descriptions, how they're described in language, these narratives, these stories. I could we could even talk about folklore in some ways. Uh, how it contains a certain aura that gets passed down historically. These are, in a certain way of speaking, performative utterances that subjectivity uh, uh, enacts in in order to produce itself, in order to create effects. And so, you know, it's. I guess it's not so much about is the paranormal real or not okay in a scientific sense right in as much as it should be about what kinds of power effects what kinds of performances do these sort of narratives entail in terms of larger uh meta narrative meta narratives or dominant discourses
0: to my understanding to be a little bit technical. The uh, critical theory originated uh, uh, is sort of a merger of uh, social science, sociology particularly, and philosophy. And, and it's associated uh, in its origins with something known as the Frankfurt School.
1: That's right. That's right. So critical theory tends to trace its uh, its origin, its heritage back to the Frankfurt School. And um, and out of that we have within that we have all these different sort of um and this is important these interdisciplinary uh sort of lenses and perspectives that we that are sort of you know created in in this setting um we have sociology jeff just like you say but we also have marxist theory okay so trying to understand economics and these sort of economic hegemonic forces that work to to produce uh, good consumers, we could say uh, in one sense, uh, and we also have philosophy, of course, more of a, a philosophical understanding of of how these ideas sort of are passed down historically and and not just that, but the the effects that go into uh, the creation of these of these various disciplines
0: wouldn't it also be the case, Jake, that Critical theory is very closely linked with postmodernism.
1: That is uh, sometimes debated how close the link is. Um, I think on, for for um, not good reasons, right? Postmodernism has kind of uh, gotten a bad rap uh, in the academy and I think in the public generally. Uh, but the two are really separate. Of course, there's similarities between the two. Um, for example, let's take the uh, critique of dominant discourses as one example. Uh, the ways that these sort of cover over our, our everyday commonsensical understanding of reality in ourselves. Uh, so I think both of them share that. Uh, but I think critical theory is more um, interventive and productive. In other words, sort of what we were talking about a bit ago is that critical theory really wants to sort of create a change in the ways that these discourses are sort of overlapping and produce something new, create something.
0: And one area that I would associate as particularly combining critical theory and postmodernism would be uh, all the theories uh, and approaches coming out of the feminist movement.
1: Yes, I think jeff, you're you're right on. And I think if we want to even anchor this more specifically in parapsychology, uh, I would argue, and i I say this in the book. Um, I think in both the introduction and my first chapter, uh, I talk about how feminism has really led the way in parapsychology in terms of being a critical approach. Um, and so, uh, you know, we have the the recent publication uh, from the Journal of Anomalistics on feminism and parapsychology. This was last year in 2022, uh, and so that that sort of built on the insights of a conference that was held in 1991 on feminism and parapsychology, even though it was you know many many years later. Uh, so. There's still some interest uh, in this critical feminist approach in parapsychology and it was sort of refreshing last year to sort of see that revived. And I think the, um, the book is, uh, builds on that, of course, but also wants to expand that in parapsychology, see things. Feminism's really important, but there are other lenses by which we can examine these exceptional experiences.
0: It strikes me, Jake, that there's a close relationship between numerous groups that are marginalized in our culture and the awareness and practice of psychic functioning. It could be females, it could be indigenous people, it could be people who have been abused as uh, children, it could be gay people. Trans people—it's almost as if, by the very fact of being marginalized, one somehow is pushed into a, a deeper relationship with their own psyche, and and out of that often comes paranormal functions.
1: There, that is a really interesting parallel, um, and I sort of advocate for that outsider position, as others have done. Uh in the past, I'm thinking of uh you know Raya White right now uh you know sort of advocating that feminist parapsychologists because they're so othered you know parapsychology itself is a fringe discipline, but then to be a feminist in parapsychology is even more fringe, <laughs> so it's like this uh uh you know what she calls a I think a, a, a double vision or sort of gives us, in other words, a unique perspective because we're so other. Um, and so, yeah, I think that um, I, I advocate in, in the book, Paranormal Ruptures, I advocate that as parapsychologists, we should sort of embrace that otherness and sort of see what it can do. And to your point, more specifically, Jeff, I, I, I do think that there, does seem to be some kind of connection between uh being stigmatized, being pathologized, being o- ostracized or experiencing, you know, trauma whether it's societal or personal and the presence of exceptional experiences. Uh so, you know, I don't know, know exactly what to make of that, but it, it's sort of a, uh, this interesting parallel. And I think it's no coincidence that that occurs in individuals. And we also have uh, the otherness of parapsychology, the fact that it's a fringe discipline. Um, so I think those two are really interesting to kind of hold together.
0: In your book, uh, I'm gonna jump around a little bit. You You talk about I guess I call it an archetype that represents the epitome of of being on the fringe and it's the archetype of the monster. And uh, I mean if, if there's anything that people shy away from in general it would be monsters. Nobody likes monsters except maybe in cartoons when they can be somehow c- cuddly there there's always that type of a monster but you're talking about the really fearsome monsters like out of hp uh, lovecraft novels and you're suggesting that one approach for people engaged in the Paranormal, or maybe even for people who are marginalized in any way, is to embrace the archetype of the monster to allow themselves to express the the power of that archetype
1: There is a power that comes with being rejected okay, you know and, and it's sort of this you know. Kind of showmanship, I want to prove myself you know i've got I've got something to prove my worth, I guess, and so so that kind of i'm going to call it a subterranean drive you know that kind of comes within that why do we keep going when you know when people let's say you know are are so rejected by society they're not if, if you have an exceptional experience you're not believed you're shunned you're stigmatized. So, so what is that internalness that that these people keep going? They keep telling their story. They keep wanting to advocate for what they believe is true, and that's their let's say in this case their exceptional experience, and that that sort of encapsulate this this monstrosity, this power of the monster. Uh, you know that I advocate that we, in some ways, embrace embrace as as not just people that may have had exceptional experiences, but as a discipline. Uh, you know, in paranormal studies and psi studies, you know, we su- should sort of embrace the the threat. I know that's sort of a uh, a loaded term, but I think it's appropriate in some ways. The threat that exceptional experience exceptional experiences can bring to bear on let's call it mainstream science or legendary science it is really threatening and there's there's a connection there between that sort of monstrous threat and reasons why parapsychology has been so sidelined
0: Well, I think you've hit the the nail on the head in a way when you consider the ultimate implications of extrasensory perception is that I could know your secrets and and the secrets of uh, anyone in a position of power who wishes to hide their secrets or the ultimate implication of psychokinesis is I could stop your heart. So so those are monstrous implications yes
1: yes monstrous implications and uh you know I, I socially even let's not even talk about you know science let's just say socially i don't think we are prepared you know to sort of accept some of those monstrous implications i mean of course i don't we're not right i mean I, we're definitely not prepared you know so uh yeah. So I think, you know, I think research, I see some research sort of researchers thinking about this more and more. But, you know, let's call it the, the politics of parapsychology or sort of the social implications that might come with the fact that if some of these things are, are real and legitimate, we would have to consider exactly what you're saying, Jeff, that these, these, that they have implications for our institutions, for the way our society is set up. And we, you know, would have to re-envision that. You know, given that, uh,
0: given that truth. Well, it's interesting. You've just used the phrase, if some of these things are real or legitimate. And I know in your book, you, you deal a lot with this question of reality. Uh, who, who is in charge of defining what is real and what is legitimate? And uh, I remember, uh, recently, uh, because we're re- releasing a, a video by uh, the, late author, Robert Anton Wilson. He wrote a book called Reality is Whatever You Can Get Away With.
1: Okay, I like that. I mean, I think that may not be so applicable in today's society. I think it's much more complex. I talk a little bit about this in the book, in chapter one, where I talk about the importance of media So it's sort of multi-layered. I think uh, the media absolutely sort of colors and uh, uh, feeds us information about reality, thereby structuring how we perceive things, how we interpret the world. Um, The media, I think science, let's call it physicalism, materialism, or legendary science, sort of says this is not possible, this is possible, or gives us certain laws to sort of make sense out of the world by which we then learn to self-police ourselves, our behavior. If you have it as an exceptional experience, right, and you're sort of indoctrinated into this mindset, you're going to kind of, you know, not pay attention to it. It doesn't show up for you. And so um, you know, those are just those are just two two I think uh, levels by which our sort of reality is constructed. There's the intersubjective level, um, which I think is you know really powerful. Um, but but you know, so, so to your question, Jeff, you know, there, there's no simple simple answer. But I think the important point is, and the book tries to make this point as well, is that reality isn't stable. Okay, so we uh, we just like we uh, develop and change as we grow older in terms of development and identity and personality. Reality also does that. okay, and it's colored and shaded again by culture, by geography, by your context, history, all of these, all of these things. So um, it's sort of a fragile concept. And I think you know I, I, in the the book sort of articulates this more but i think i'm i'm trying to call your attention to this the the very fact that that our sense of reality we only need to look to to the psychology literature and talk about psychosis right to understand how fragile reality can be uh so um so it's 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 mutable it's changeable. It's dynamic. It's not this sort of simple um, simple framework that a lot of people think it is.
0: One of my favorite chapters in your new anthology is uh, the one by the anthropologist Jack Hunter, who, who has been a guest on New Thinking Aloud and will be soon again because his new book, I think the title is Deep Weird, uh, is, is very provocative. He's looking at examples that have been documented in the anthropology literature that totally defy our normal sense of, of, of what's possible. The uh, idea of the walking dead or the uh, self-propelled coffin. And I, I have heard other anthropologists and interviewed them who, who testify to these things
1: yeah jack has a really really interesting great chapter on exactly exactly that jeff he goes through three uh sort of uh descriptions narratives that come from the anthropological literature and sort of ponders how is this possible right these are trained scholars trained researchers and yet they witness they experience these very very anomalous occurrences you know, and so, uh, for you know, I think it's sort of interesting just to read the accounts, right? That's sort of entertaining and kind of captivating in itself. But then, you know, Jack goes on to sort of ponder, um, uh, you know, the this sort of, you know, reality firm firmness that many of us sort of have. And rather than thinking about reality as stable, right, maybe we should think about, reality is sort of permeable and it's sort of, you know, it can intermix with, with, you know, other things. Uh, so, so on, I think he calls it ontological permeability or something to that effect. And so, uh, uh, or ecological permeability, I think he, he likes the term ecological, which I think is great because it, again, it gets us away from this monolithic view that there's one reality. There's one ontology. And thinking about ecology brings forward context, brings forward environment, brings forward history. And so, um, yeah, I think it, it's a more nuanced understanding and it doesn't sort of just apply this sort of meta narrative onto everything.
0: Back to critical theory, one of the points you make is that the uh, classical theorists. Uh, some of the major figures in the field have used – you use the word tropes – tropes that come out of the uh, paranormal literature we've talked about this previously like the idea of hauntings and hauntology and and they use it of course in very different ways than the would, one would find it in the popular culture or even in the parapsychology literature a a haunting might be something that lasts for uh, for many generations and is spread out throughout an entire culture Uh, for example.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, I think I sort of uh, suggest that the contributors in the book are kind of turning the tables on critical theory in terms of using it, using these figures as mere tropes or as metaphors. So in other words, the contributors are trying to examine Right, Take seriously that these are sort of literal experiences that are ongoing and try and understand that. And, you know, we could contrast that. I think this is sort of something else to to bring to our attention to is that critical theory is rife with the paranormal. Critical theorists uh, have for a long time, you know, talked about what we would consider paranormal things today. They just have used it in this more figurative and, and metaphorical sense. Whereas, right, it can, it's helpful in terms of analysis. Let's take the term hauntology job that you talked about, uh, Derrida inspectors of Marx, you know, brings us forward again as a better way to think about ontology, to think about reality. And so, just like you're saying, you know, we can be haunted collectively, not by actual specters, not by apparitions or ghosts, but by sort of this collective cultural trauma, right? This left unresolved. Uh, so, you know, it's sort of interesting, you know, that, that, that there's this, this, this bridge between the metaphorical and the literal, the literal. But I don't think it's always so dichotomous. I think that they're again to you know think about permeability. They kind of leak through these boundaries, sort of intermix with one another. Um, so I think that the the affinities that critical theory has for the paranormal already exist. It's sort of just putting those to work, and I think that's what a lot of the contributors do in the book.
0: At the same time, Jake, I am under the impression, and and correct me if I'm wrong, that these philosophers uh, like Deleuze and and the others, uh, Habermas and uh, so on, the big contributors from the Frankfurt School and elsewhere, uh, aren't particularly interested or familiar with the literature of parapsychology. They treat it much the same way that the the so-called traditional sciences do
1: yeah i think you're i think you're right yeah i think there there's not um so you know i'm thinking of conflicting evidence for for example let's take freud right i know that there's some literature out there regarding you know freud's sort of flirtation with the occult or with parapsychology and of course freudian psychoanalysis is a, a hugely important um you know for critical theory um, but, you know, I think there's cases like that. Okay. Perhaps, but I think your point in general, Jeff, is, is, is true. And that, you know, they are using these tropes and metaphors, but they but there's a reason for that. And I, there's a, I think there's a thesis statement in the book or sentence, right? Where I say that the paranormal is necessarily critical and so there's a so in other words I'm interested in the why do these theorists select these sort of paranormal ideas and metaphors to do really important theoretical and, pr- and practical work in their in their you know scholarship well there's a reason right because there's something about paranormality you know that you know, <laughs> we don't know what to do with it kind of pushes back against you know, unusual understandings, I mean, you know, I, to even invoke, you know, the, the Freudian notion of the uncanny, right? There's something uncanny or, or, or not at home about the paranormal that sort of is, is enticing but also scary.
0: Of course, it suggests that everything is interconnected. That seems to be the bottom line when it comes to the paranormal because uh, if we look at uh, conventional Newtonian physics, things that are entirely disconnected behave as if they are connected. And uh, I guess, you know, the bottom line for me is, yes, they are connected. Uh, The mystics had it right when they said all is one but from the point of view of people in power they typically would say the last thing you want to do is give power to a mystic
1: i love that <laughs> cuz you're not you're not going to know what's going to happen that's right yeah, yeah i mean i mean it's, it's surely it's got to be sort of you know evident just from our our brief discussion so far is that paranormal is an ecological model or a systems model or not uh, not paranormal critical critical and paranormal i would say right so so critical theory wants us to examine the systems the overlapping ecological systems that go into the creation of these things the paranormal i think uh good parapsychology, in other words, you know, research that's sort of, you know, pushing the envelope and and sort of really trying to examine what's going on, uh, tends to be this sort of systems approach, seeing that everything is interconnected. We can contrast that, Jeff, with exactly what you said about the powers that be tend to be hierarchical. Okay, not in, not enmeshed, in not systems, not all these different sort of worlds intertwining, but there there's this, a hierarchy, and there's levels to that hierarchy. There's certain privileges, and um, so I think that uh, you know critical does a critical theory does a, a good job at trying to examine that hierarchy or what I allude to in the book. Gramsci calls it hegemony. There's this this sort of directional hegemony that is implicit in our cultural practices, uh, but unless we do the work, we can't make it. We it's hard to make it explicit, right? Operating sort of just sort of you know I guess we could call it subconsciously or kind of in the air. Um, So. So, that, that hegemony is against this more system, seeing things as interconnected.
0: You point out in your discussion of uh, Gramsci, who is a fascinating figure, uh, did his greatest writing while he was in prison, as, as I recall, makes the distinction between dominance and hegemony. And maybe you could elaborate.
1: Yeah, I yeah, guess so it's sort of a, it's a nuanced distinction um i think yeah hegemony tends to be this more uh, i want to call it historically embedded institutional kind of um ethos i guess or air that you know is sort of uh within the the society or culture okay versus you know dominance isn't is more explicit and isn't so sort of insidious, okay? You, I mean, it's it's kind of just more out in the open, okay? So, you know, what I try and do is is to to examine this notion of hegemony, right? And I would say that uh, let's just say the natural sciences or materialism has a certain hegemonic power on our conception of the paranormal. Uh, and i try to deconstruct that and understand where does that come from and how can we change that or how or how rather how can we develop a fuller picture um this more systems oriented picture versus uh you know sort of what we take for granted or what's handed over to us ideologically you know, from materialism, materialism in the natural sciences.
0: I think maybe I can give you a really good example, as it pertains to parapsychology, of dominance and hege- hegemony from my own experience, after I received my doctoral diploma in parapsychology from Berkeley, which was unique. Uh, at the time, and maybe still is unique. I don't know if West Georgia gives out diplomas yet that say parapsychology on them. But after that happened, a dean at the university graduate, the dean of the graduate division, uh, said, we're going to revoke your degree. And uh, when I said, well, why? He said, because major universities don't give degrees in parapsychology. And, uh, that would be an example of dominance. On the, on the other hand, uh, as regards hegemony, it would be the critique after uh, uh, Etzel Cardania published this magnificent piece in twenty eighteen in the American Psychologist reviewing meta analyses covering some thirteen hundred scientific experiments in parapsychology with very, very strong statistical significance and very rigorous methodology. The skeptics Reber and alcock uh countered with uh the simple i would call it a trope. But an example of hegemony, they said, it doesn't matter how much evidence you have, because this is impossible. And and that's sort of the, a world view that people have. It's impossible. So, whatever you say, there must be something wrong with it.
1: Does it yeah, that's a great example. Uh, that's a great example. I mean, I think, you know, we, uh, I mean, we, we know this as parapsychologists, how frequently You know we run up against these things the whether it's hegemonic power or just sort of sheer dominance uh and you know so i think uh, there's of course there's that layer to it but also i am sort of i'm really interested in advocating for you know individuals non-academic non-professional individuals that have these exceptional experiences and again you know to what i said a bit ago about the importance whether clinically or just in terms of being a human but just validating their experience and not trying to pathologize you know you know applying you know what in critical theory we would call the dominant discourse of psychology or psychological misperception Right. Saying, oh, you know, you just misperceived it or maybe, you know, they have a psychopathology like schizophrenia, so on and so forth. So that, you know. Again, you know, getting back to that, getting away from that hegemonic power and sort of in some ways, you know, returning, returning it back to the individual, empowering the individual you know to really take ownership and try and understand what they're experiencing.
0: I learned a new term from reading your uh, book. It was in your first chapter, your essay in and the term I really like it now now that I understand it, neurodiversity.
1: Neurodiversity, that's right. That's right. Yeah, a really good colleague of mine, Tim Beck, has a, a chapter on on neurodiversity theory and its relation to algorithms and magic. Uh, of course, neurodiversity, you know, is just sort of uh, celebrating these neurological differences, whether you, you know, maybe have ASD, autism spectrum disorder, or have, you know other kinds of um uh uh, different kinds of neurological patterns neurodiversity you know sort of wants us to embrace these and see the differences in being human and again not trying to pathologize not just saying you know oh i'm i'm deficient because i have this and so you know you know to return to tim's chapter you know i i think he does a really uh excellent job at trying to examine how magic as is traditionally understood uh has a similar logic to the way that modern day algorithms operate uh, you think about you know facebook and, and instagram you know and Am- amazon you know they have all these background algorithms that are you know constructing our reality in some ways or suggesting us certain goods and so so, yeah, it's an interesting parallel between what we would consider, think of as magic, right? And these, these, um, algorithms that are sort of implicit in our technological, uh, devices nowadays. And we don't think about it, but yet, you know, it produces this version of reality that's sort of, uh, very unique to, to our modern time.
0: Another point that you bring up in your book is uh, the idea of non-human intelligence, alien consciousness, and how it relates to the, the burgeoning field of artificial intelligence.
1: Yeah, yeah. Towards the end of the book, uh, that we, of course, we have we have Tim's chapter on um, on magic and neurodivergent belief, but we also have the last three chapters. I sort of did this right when I was conceptualizing where things go. I sort of wanted to end with this more technological shift, and and so there's two chapters um, on on what we call UAPs now, unidentified aerial phenomena. Um, and uh, there's a final chapter on uh, AI or artificial intelligence that tries to understand, you know, the effects that um, AI is, is going to have maybe in the futures, the effects that it's having now and how we can how we consider AI as it's traditionally defined as paranormal. You know, if we would think back, you know, in the 20th century, the way we think of AI now, we could just, we could call it, it's paranormal in some, we don't know how it's operating, right? If we give, if we ascribe sentience or consciousness to, let's say, Lambda, which which is what Chris articulates in the paper, we don't know where that comes from. We don't have a good understanding of that. So in some sense, it's paranormal. Um, and then Chris also sort of tries to think about, Uh, Neuralink, um, which I believe is Elon Musk's company, how it's, you know, they're trying to interface it with uh, our brains such that conceivably uh, telepathy using technological means is going to be very, very possible uh, in, in our future, in our society. And so, you know, what implications does that have? You know, if we use these technological devices to to help us uh, uh, with our, let's say, psychic abilities, you know, clearly we're going to have to sort of think through that.
0: One of the th- thoughts that I've had reflecting on all of these different marginalized groups is a word that's become a buzzword lately in our culture, particularly on on the right, but also on on the political left. The word woke, and uh people on the right are very much afraid of of woke they don't know what it means but but they know it's bad it, and uh, it seems to me one way of thinking about woke is the idea that all of these marginalized communities and the worldviews world views that they represent should have equal status they should they should be treated the same as mainstream views and uh, that seems outrageous to some and it seems obvious to other people, I'm under the impression that what you're trying to do in your work is is to find a kind of a balanced approach.
1: Yeah, I think think a balanced approach um, and definitely not trying to homogenize or make the same everybody. Everybody's not the same. You know let's think about people have individual differences different groups of people need different things and that's important right we you know i'm thinking you know critical theory in particular you know really emphasizes how important uh important difference is and we we want to pay attention to that and we want to um you know sort of give these marginalized groups try and you know provide the context what they need so that you know they can flourish they can prosper they can grow they can develop according to how they want to develop so yeah so i think jeff it's not about applying this you know having everybody be the same right which incidentally you know to go back to to marx's theory that's what capitalism does right if we you guys we just need to look at uh our media our commercials facebook right this 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 sort of ideological force of capitalism capitalism wants to create this consumer out of us um, and so that's more that creation of the same that's homogenization uh, but critical theory you know wants to be more nuanced wants to be more careful and understand how these different groups these different people. Um, how they're different and celebrate that difference.
0: Well, Jake, it's been a pleasure speaking to you about this. I haven't given much thought to critical theory until recently, but you're really convincing me that the relationship between the paranormal and particularly the science of parapsychology and and critical theory has a real future. I think you're on to something.
1: I appreciate that, Jeff. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to be here. It's great to be back. And I appreciate you sort of giving me a space to, to talk a little bit about critical theory. And again, to make that really important connection between these critical approaches and the import they have for exceptional experiences. So, thank you.
0: Well, and, and let me highlight your use of the word exceptional experiences and the re- several references you've made to Raya White, who, uh, who originally, I think, brought that term into common usage, particularly in the parapsychology community, because it, it suggests that our traditional categories of looking at everything, it's either psychokinesis or extrasensory perception, may be inadequate
1: yes yeah i mean the, that's the problem with language and you know critical theory i'm thinking of uh deconstruction and, and linguistics you know it does a good job of trying to understand this nuance about language we th- it, 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 cr- it creates these silos you know that we see esp is separate from pk is separate from you know the survival question you know so so that's why i, I like the term exceptional experiences it's broader it's more inclusive and uh, you know, it, it's not what the um, experimentalists would call psi. I think there's problems with psi as a sort of variable. You know, the parapsychologists use in experimentation, right? So, yeah, bring it back to the human. Think about uh, you know what Ray White called exceptional human experiences. And, you know, you know. nowadays we sort of uh, shorten it to just exceptional experiences. And it's more of an inclusive term.
0: Well, it's been a pleasure being with you today, Jake. Thank you so much for being available and being with me. And we'll be following your work closely over the years.
1: Thank you, Jeff.
0: And hope to have you back many more times.
1: I hope so as well. I'll, I'll plan for it.
0: And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the New Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a nonprofit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.